Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me today is our friend and brother in Christ, Ren Cherry. Ren, welcome to the Equipping You Grace podcast, sir. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. Um, Tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, yeah. and what ministry projects you're working on. Sure. So I, I'm i going to be celebrating 30 years of marriage uh, this fall with to my wife, Terry. And we have two children. I call them children. Our daughter. Carly is uh, 27. She lives in Indiana with her husband, Daniel, uh, and our son, Jack. He lives in Houston. He goes to dental school down there. So mm-hmm. uh, my wife and I both came to faith in Christ when we were about 40 years old. And after a, uh, just a few years after our conversion, we moved our family to Russia, where we served as missionaries there for five years, right in the heart of Moscow. Wow. Yeah. And then we returned to Texas where I served as a pastor for five years. And then that's when we moved to Fort Worth to do doctoral work in the area of biblical counseling. So now I serve as a professor of biblical counseling at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Kansas City. And I also kind of my day job is director of finances and donor relations at the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, also known as ACBC. So we're located here on the campus of Midwestern Seminary, and we love it. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, and congratulations to you and your wife. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's wonderful. 30 years, that's great. Yeah. You're well beyond the 20 years, you know, that's when you're supposedly, (laughs) supposedly, you know, you're just getting started or whatever. Some people (laughs) say. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Anyway. Well, uh, can you uh, tell us about this great book that you've written, um, Enneagram Theology is a Christian, uh, why you wrote it, and how uh, how it's been received so far? Sure. So when I decided to leave the pastorate and to get a PhD, I really did so because I was, I was starting to see pastors in churches who were focused on preaching and teaching at the exclusion of pastoring and shepherding the flock. So don't hear me say that preaching is not important. What I'm saying is I was starting to see pastors that were exclusively focused on preaching and teaching as if that, you know, everything else took a back seat to that. And when I read scripture, I don't see that as a picture of a biblically qualified elder and shepherd. So many pastors that I was seeing just did not want to counsel and shepherd. So I asked the Lord to allow me to get the credentials I needed in order to teach biblical counseling to pastors who come through what I call these MDiv factories. And as you know, when you get a PhD, you have to write a dissertation. And for me, I really did not care what I wrote on. Originally, I thought that I might do a biblical critique of the Myers-Briggs personality typology. That interest of mine was, was based really on our sending agency that sent us to the mission field. That's that's a typology that they used. And we spent a lot of time going through that. Mm. But in 2018, my PhD supervisor told me that he thought that the Myers-Briggs system was becoming somewhat passe. And so he suggested to me to research the Enneagram instead. I had honestly never heard of it. Uh, but when I began to do just initial research, Late in 2018, here's what was interesting. There was no published books speaking against the Enneagram from a Christian perspective. Now, again, I didn't know anything about this system. Uh, so just that a, a cursory flyby set of research uh, actions that I did, I, I found, okay, there were a few articles and blogs that kind of hinted that it may be not okay. Uh, but as you know, Dave, in academia, we debate the smallest of differences. And so when I saw that only one side of the Enneagram story was being told, really through historically Christian publishers such as Zondervan and University Press, I was a little bit alarmed. That was like a red flag for me. 
So I decided to research and write really on the Enneagram's underlying doctrines of God, of man, of sin, and salvation. And I wanted to compare those doctrines, those Enneagram doctrines, to orthodox evangelical doctrines in those same areas. And really, the book itself, I realized that most pastors don't have the time to research systems like this. And when they're approached either by other pastors or congregants, or as I call them, Enneagram evangelists, people who are singing the praises of the system, many pastors are ill-equipped to respond biblically. So that's why I did the research and I wrote the book. And as far as reception, I haven't gotten any hate mail yet, but I have gotten several encouraging emails, letters from Christians who were using the Enneagram, but they really were unaware of its foundational anti-biblical theology. And many of them since have stopped using it and stopped endorsing it. Mm. Well, praise the Lord. You know, that's, that's, that's really good news. You know, I I didn't know about this uh, at all until uh, I think I first heard of the Enneagram. I think it would have been like 2018 or 19. And my wife was saying that some Christians uh, at, at a church where you were at uh, previously in another state were uh, suggesting, you know, that they as Christians could engage in the Enneagram. I was like, I don't even know what the Enneagram is. <laughs> what is that? And so that then I, you know, like you, I went in and started looking, you know, what is this? What what is what is this about? You know, what and then and then that's led me now down the rabbit trail of, you know, further into studying new age and understanding its effects and and everything. So mm-hmm. I think that it that is uh really important you know it's important like you said to provide resources for people that don't know to warn to educate and and to inform i think so you know so a lot of people they suggest that the enneagram is just a personality test so they shouldn't be concerned about it you know they can engage in it as christians like i was just mentioning it seems to me like this kind of argument by enneagram supporters it's used as a strategy to normalize the Enneagram in the church because it's now being used as a test for, as you write in your book, um, a job or ministry position in the church. What's your response uh, to the promotion of the Enneagram in this way? Yeah, so I get that a lot. Uh, And I would say at first pass, the Enneagram, it can appear to be a tool that just helps me understand me and to understand others better. I would I would submit to you that never before in the history of personality typologies has a system been spiritualized like the Enneagram. So mm-hmm. while while Myers Briggs has somewhat of a cult like following, there's no real hint of some type of connection with God through that system. However, a study of the history of the Enneagram it'll reveal pretty quickly that the system came into evangelical circles mainly through authors Ian Crone, Suzanne Stabile. They wrote The Road Back to You, all right, published by InterVarsity Press, along with Christopher Hertz, who wrote The Sacred Enneagram. This book is published by uh, Zondervan. That's significant for two main reasons. First, those publishers have historically been reputable evangelical publishers. Hmm. Second thing is, all of these authors, Ian Crone, Suzanne Stabile, Christopher Hertz, they were personally mentored by Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is what I would call the de facto Enneagram theologian. So just like the president of the United States is the de facto leader of the free world, there's no leader of the free world association that deems him so. Yet we see other world leaders following him. Well, the same applies with Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic priest who advanced his own doctrines of God of man, of sin, of salvation through his own writings. And so in, in my own book, I focused a lot on Richard Rohr and his doctrines of man, God, sin, and salvation. And I wanted to evaluate what I call his ologies, right? His theology. First of all, so again, the, the significance is that Richard Rohr influenced these Enneagram authors that were published by evangelical publishers, historically evangelical publishers. These books are dedicated to Richard Rohr. 
They are smitten with him. They gush over him, right? And so he's been highly influential in these in these books with the authors that wrote them. Okay, so so number one, if you look at Richard Rohr's theology, he is what we would call a panentheist. Okay, his theology is panentheism. What that means is he teaches that God is in everything. Mm-hmm. So not that God is everything, but that God is in all of creation, mm-hmm. including man. And Rohr teaches that God indwelt all of creation at the event of creation, which Richard Rohr calls the first incarnation. Let me just pause here. I'm not making this stuff up, and I'm not trying to push my book, but I'm, what I'm saying is I quote Rohr heavily in my book, so I've got over 500 footnotes in that small book because I want to make sure that people didn't think I was misreading Rohr. And in fact, in my book, I I have footnoted the Richard Rohr response to my email requesting a face-to-face meeting with him to make sure that I had his theology, anthropology, homardiology, stereology correct. But he denied that, that meeting. Okay, so, but all that to say, Richard Rohr subscribes to panentheism. He believes that God is in all things, and he would maintain that God entered into all of creation at the first coronation, at the first incarnation that happened at creation. Okay. Secondly, we see how Richard Rohr's theology informs his anthropology, that is his doctrine of man. So he teaches that man is good by nature and has been good from the event of creation. So, So stay with me here. Because God, according to panentheism, indwelled all creation, including man, at the first incarnation, man has been divine in nature since creation. In fact, Rohr considers the concept of original sin to be what he calls a burdensome man-made construct that he traces all the way back to Augustine. Mm -hmm. And Richard Rohr even goes as far as to call out the likes of Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Martin Luther for preaching on original sin. Okay, so but the the big idea of Enneagram theology is that man is good. In fact, man is divine. And the the problem according to the Enneagram is that we just don't realize it, which leads us to an evaluation of what we would call Enneagram homardiology, right? Which is just a big word for the doctrine of sin. So, according to its anti-biblical it means it's anti-Christian. So the Bible is a Christian book, and the Enneagram is in direct conflict with it. Now, let me just speak to the testing issue for a job or ministry in a church. I think people must first understand the brilliance, what I'll I'll call the brilliance, so to speak, of systems like Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. And here's the brilliance of it, is that you, you, get to take the test and you get to decide who you want to be. So you can, in effect, recreate yourself each time you take a typology test. And I've talked to people that have admitted to doing that. But once you do define yourself using an Enneagram test for a job or a ministry position, guess what? If the the company or the church does indeed decide to hire you, that group, that company, that church, they will expect you to respond in very predictable ways according to the Enneagram number that, wait for it, that you said you were when you took the test. So I I frequently have people kind of sheepishly ask me whether they should take an Enneagram test in order to get a job. And I ask them, if they understand the underlying theology of the system, and if they're willing to be a party to basically propagating the use of such an anti-biblical system. So what I recommend is that people, when they're faced with that situation of taking the test, to ask very directly this question, will I be eliminated as a job candidate for refusing to take an Enneagram test? That's an important question because if the answer to that question is yes, if you don't take the test, you will be eliminated, 
that's going to show you how committed that organization is to the Enneagram system. And that would be what you're signing up for. So that's my advice to people that are faced with that test-taking dilemma, uh, even for Christian jobs. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking, I don't know that I, I've, I've, I've thought about it this way. Um, but you know, since he's Catholic, we know that the, the Catholics have scripture and tradition at basically the, we could say like the same level, the, the, they're running on the same railroad track. So I'm just curious here, you know, uh, but I'm just curious, like what role did that play in Roar? Uh, you know, promoting this like Enneagram tool above scripture and even, you know, tradition uh, in, in his Catholic theology. Yeah. I, so my wife was raised Catholic. Um, she came to faith in Christ at about 40 years of age. I had been to church. I was a nominal Christian that I didn't really, I was raised a, as a Baptist, but I was, and I was not walking with the Lord mm. either. And so I've been to a lot of Catholic churches with my wife, a lot of services, probably know more about Catholicism than most Catholics, to be honest. But here, here's the thing about that I that I learned even during this research is Roar and others, and this is not a slam against Roman Catholicism, but there's really not a role for the Holy Spirit. There's not this process of sanctification that we see in Ephesians 4, progressive sanctification as one aspect of salvation. It's not there. So this role of the Holy Spirit to refine us, to conform us to the image of Christ, that is, that's not part of his system. So they do very much elevate this Enneagram. And you'll, you'll see that. Uh, actually, I'll point it out later in a critique of Jeff and Beth McCord's book. They do elevate the Enneagram and, and really talk about it in the same sentence on par with with scripture. And, and, and they do give some of these Enneagram authors, they do give what I call the obligatory nod to the authority of scripture uh, every now and then, just to more or less acknowledge it. But there's really not a role for applying scripture in the process of sanctification. So I, 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 would, I would point to their lack of recognition that scripture is written by the Holy Spirit, right? We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses really 19 through 21, where it speaks, Peter speaking to the role of the Holy Spirit as, as he carried along men who wrote down these words, right? And so then we also see in Ezekiel 36, the picture of God putting his spirit, well, first of all, a new heart of flesh in people and putting his spirit in them and causing them to walk in obedience to what? to his statutes and his rules. That is the words of scripture. So that's why, uh, you, you know, when someone is born again, they can read scripture for the thousandth, 1,000th time, and it makes sense to them now because the Spirit of God is in them, and the Spirit of God is the author of these words. So all that to say, I don't really see a role in uh, Roar's theology for scripture and the Holy Spirit. Hmm. That's a brilliant answer. Yeah. You know, uh, for those unfamiliar with the idea of biblical counseling, what exactly is biblical counseling? Biblical counseling is a ministry of the church. It's a personal discipleship ministry, and it's done under the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. So Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 confirms that the word is all that we need for life, life eternal, and a life of obedience. Okay. Now, this biblical counseling ministry is done by regenerate believers to regenerate believers. So, Galatians 6, really, 1 Thessalonians 5, they speak to this. 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak. Okay. So, we're commanded as regenerate believers to do this to one another. So, what that means is biblical counseling is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit and His Word. So we see this in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. So the goal, the objective of biblical counseling is conformance to the image of Christ. See that 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So I, I want to point out here that while all humans are created in the image of God, not all people will be conformed 
to the image of Christ, simply because they have not submitted themselves to Jesus and the Word of God. So he is not their Savior. Biblical counseling applies scripture that is truth and love, uh, Ephesians 4.15. It applies scripture to the issues people face in life. And this ranges from comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance and forgiveness. So so to kind of put all those components together, um, I would define biblical counseling as something like the personal ministry of God's people through the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the church under the authority of Scripture and the purpose. This is all done for the purpose of conforming regenerate believers to the image of Christ. So the the big idea that's kind of the foundational premise of biblical counseling and, and a differentiator of what I would call true biblical counseling is the sufficiency of Scripture to accomplish the work of conforming born-again believers into the image of Christ. That is a core tenet of true biblical counseling. That's a, that's a really good answer. You know, uh, we had a, we'll just say it this way without naming names. I, we had a mutual friend that you and I would know in the biblical counseling world. Um, and they were, I, I had mentioned uh, on the podcast about the Enneagram and and uh, this particular person was shocked that I mentioned the Enneagram. And later, this p- particular person that we would know, you and I would know, and our audience would know as well, mentioned that, Dave, this is a huge problem in the church, which kind of led me to this idea for this episode, which then led me to obviously yourself. So, how prevalent is the Enneagram in the biblical counseling world? Yeah, so let me first kind of qualify an answer to that question by saying that not every person who labels themselves as a biblical counselor is indeed a biblical counselor. So I think Lou Priolo said this best, but the quote, business of the Bible is to conform regenerate men and women into the image of Christ so that we can give God the praise and worship that he deserves for eternity. So this target, this goal of conforming born-again believers into the image of Christ, it stands in contrast to really the worldly goal of secular therapy that aims, if you define it, if you put it on a spectrum, secular therapy aims to minimize pain and to maximize happiness. And this is what I call a therapeutic mindset. This therapeutic approach to ministry actually has crept into churches. So many counselors that label themselves as biblical counselors, they openly embrace and they integrate worldly theories and therapies into their counseling ministries. So minimization of pain, maximization of happiness, they are subjective and feelings-based and they're temporary. So at a, at a surface level, you may think, hey, like what's wrong with minimization of pain and maximization of happiness? I mean, that sounds that sounds pretty good to me. But, but we know that God nowhere in Scripture promises those things on this earth. So while he has promised those things, uh, an end to all pain, an end to all suffering, an end to all tears one day, and he's also promised unspeakable joy with him for eternity, some counselors wrongly focus on temporary feelings-based approaches that focus on self, right? By definition. So again, scripture overwhelmingly speaks against making much of self. So we know that Christ commands us, Luke 9, 23, Galatians 2:20, to die to self on a daily basis. We also see that in John 12, I believe it's verse 24. We must die to self before we can bear much fruit. So I do see this creeping into what I would call more integrated or Christian counseling, but I think a pure biblical counselor is going to reject a system like the Enneagram as being a necessity for accomplishing God-honoring counseling that conforms one to the image of Christ. Okay, so 
Um, I, I guess I don't know if that, if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. The, no, what you're, I think what I heard you saying is, is that, you know, we have to, biblical counselors evaluate everything through the authority and the sufficiency of scripture and reject any tool then um, that that would minimize uh, that, like First Thessalonians 5.21 says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So we would reject um, the Enneagram or any tool uh, that would, uh, you know, minimize that or deflect away from that. Not, not that, you know, and this is, that was a clarification, but I guess mm-hmm. at, at the same time, when people hear that, they might also hear that we're against like, uh, uh, testing, you know, in, in common grace perspective, mm-hmm. you know, learning from psychology, uh, mm-hmm. and the insights therein. And I know that's a whole nother topic for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, maybe another time, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that that's an important, uh, clarification, um, for, for people. Cause I think when they hear that kind of idea, they're like, well, so I can't, why why do I go to the doctor? Why do I go to the, mm-hmm. you know, the psychologist? Uh, why do I go, you know, uh, take any medicine or whatever? Mm-hmm. So yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, I would I would even go on to say I, I think a lot of people uh, would ask the question, okay, what should the response of biblical counselors be to the enneagram? So I, I think that's a different angle, kind of on the same kind of root issue. Well, I, I would say first of all, you need to settle whether you yourself are a biblical counselor. So do you believe that the Bible is sufficient to fulfill God's objective, again, of conforming born-again men and women to the image of their Savior, Jesus? If you don't believe that the Bible is sufficient to accomplish this, I think you will find yourself chasing every new stylish philosophy and system that comes out. And, and what's super interesting about it is if you, if you study the history of personality typologies, which I, I did at, at a not a real deep level. I think you could, I read some interesting books about that, but here's what you find. They're very faddish and generational. They will be superseded by something else. So Walt Whitman, 150 years ago, he, I mean, he went to his grave believing that phrenology was cutting edge science. So reading the lumps on your head uh, determines what your personality type is. So it's generational, right? Then we, we see other systems come along and the Enneagram is is actually quite quite generational. But the, the bigger point is, if you don't believe the Bible is sufficient to accomplish the work of the Bible, then you'll be chasing a lot of new stylish philosophies and systems that come out. So I think the response for counselors is more a question of why they feel the need to go outside the Bible in order to accomplish the work that God has set before us. And again, God doesn't doesn't promise to heal every every sickness, or um, he, he doesn't promise us that there won't be any suffering for us as Christians. And, and I would also encourage counselors to investigate the origins and beliefs associated with any system that they would consider embracing, but certainly this system. So, you know, five years ago, there was really no good biblical critique of this anti-Christian system. But now, if you want to be better prepared for understanding some of the dangers of embracing the Enneagram system, there's some good resources available. Some new books that are out. Uh, Marsha Montenegro and Don Vino wrote one. Chris Berg wrote uh, The New Age Trojan Horse. That's a good book. Uh, I've got a book out on it. So again, just five years ago, there really was not a good biblical critique available. So any critique that utilizes scripture will quickly expose some major fundamental conflicts of Enneagram theology and biblical doctrines. So that, that's what I would uh, encourage biblical counselors to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. You know, there you're, you're, you were talking about some books earlier, but you know, there, there is a plethora of books promoting the idea of Christians engaging in the Enneagram. In fact, mm-hmm. now there's even books uh, specifically geared towards Christians, encouraging them to engage in the Enneagram in marriage and emotional intelligence. Here soon, um, even more, the titles are Becoming Us, Using the Enneagram to Create a Thriving Gospel-Centered Marriage by Beth and Jeff McCord, The Enneagram and Your Marriage, A Seven-Week Guide to Better Understanding and Loving Your Spouse 
by Jackie Brewster, published uh, in March of 2023, so this year, by Baker Books. The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success by Scott Allender, published April 2023, so this year, by Baker uh, Books. And coming soon in October 2023 by Baker Books, The Enneagram and Marriage, Your Guide to Thriving Together in Your Unique Pairing by Krista Hardin. So the question is, uh, should Christians use the Enneagram as a tool to help them deal with their emotions, marriage, or even to seek success? Yeah, so I think the best way maybe to answer your question is to give you my critique of some of those books. I haven't read all of them, but I've read many of them. I'll give you a quick critique of those, what I call representative Enneagram books. And they're written at different levels of the kind of Enneagram movement. So the first written works of Richard Rohr and Don Rizzo and I'll explain why they're, well, I've kind of explained why Richard Rohr is involved in all this, but those books were written in the 1980s. They really set up the next couple of waves of Enneagram books. So Rizzo and Hudson, they went more in the direction of Enneagram test development, while Rohr, and remember he's the panentheist Catholic priest, he mentored Suzanne Stabile, Ian Crone, and Christopher Hertz. All three of those mentees went on to be published by InterVarsity Press, Zondervan. And their books came out around 2016, 2017. So both these books, that's the time frame roughly of these books. We're now seeing authors applying the Enneagram to more specific relational areas of life, one of which is marriage. So history has shown that people are willing to buy books and services that promise to do three things. <laughs> Number one, help you lose weight quickly. Number two, Get rich quickly. Number three, improve your marriage or your sex life. So, you know, there's going to be a market for new concepts in all three of those those areas. So what we see here is two books that I have read and that are written specifically about marriage. Let me, let me give you some comments on those. First of all, let me comment on this book again. Jeff and Beth McCord wrote this, Becoming Us, Using the Enneagram to Create a Thriving Gospel-Centered Marriage came out in 2020. Now, the McCords, they also have an organization that certifies people as, quote, Enneagram coaches. And in fact, Jackie Brewster, who I'll give a quick critique of her book in a minute, she is a certified Enneagram coach by the McCords. Okay, so just a couple of couple of points here about the McCords. <clears throat> now, again, they are making claim that the Enneagram is a a tool to create a thriving gospel-centered, there it is, gospel-centered marriage, all right? So in the in- introduction of the book, they they make the, the claim, and I want to quote here, that the Enneagram transformed our relationship with ourselves and with each other. The truth, I'm sorry, they cite two things that, quote, transformed our relationship with others, with, with ourselves, and with each other. Those two things are the truth of the gospel. Number two is the Enneagram. And it's an insightful tool that brought astonishing clarity to our heart's motivations. Right now, hmm, we're going to hear that again. Okay. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 is very clear that the role of discerning the intentions and motivations of the heart, that is reserved for the Holy Spirit and his word. That is the makaira. That's the, that's the word that's used there in Greek. That is the double-edged sword that is used to make those distinctions of a person's heart motivations. So there's no man-made tool that can lay claim to that. That role is reserved for the Holy Spirit. We see further in the introduction, uh, the McCord's write, the Enneagram became a tool for our growth and sanctification in Christ. Listen, though it's a great tool by itself, it's exponentially more powerful in the hands of God shaping us than it is in our hands alone. So we see a foundational premise found in the in the front matter of the book that, that says the Bible's really not sufficient to complete the sanctifying work in a believer's life. So I've got two main concerns with the McCords book. And again, the McCords have influenced Jackie Brewster. Okay. But here's my two big concerns. The, the book advocates 
a version of the gospel. Again, they make they use the gospel term and they use the term throughout the book, but they they advocate a version of gospel that's incomplete because it does not include repentance of a life of sin and saving faith in Christ alone. So I, I did a word search. I actually bought the electronic version, the ebook version of this book. Did a word search and repent or repentance was only in the book three times, and one of those usages was a, was a quote of uh, a verse from Romans, I believe. But, but here's the thing. Repentance and faith, as we know, repentance and saving faith must accompany each other in the true biblical gospel. We know that. The, the apparent starting point of the gospel in the McCord's book is place your faith in the person of Christ and rest in who you are in him. So said differently, I would say repentance is an unmistakable component of biblical of the biblical gospel, but it is not an unmistakable component of the gospel presented in this self-labeled gospel-centered system. So I'd say this is concerning at best, and it's misleading to readers at worst. Um, I have other concerns with the book, but I would say the second of my biggest concerns is, is this. The, the book presents the, the Enneagram as, as the guide, the GPS, as they would term it, the illuminating agent, the discerner of the person's heart. And in, in the life of, of a born-again believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God at regeneration, it is the Holy Spirit, again, alone, who causes us to walk in obedience to the words of Scripture written by the Holy Spirit himself. So, so please don't miss this. The, the work of the Holy Spirit will always be connected to the words written by the Holy Spirit, the words of Scripture. That's because, again, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. So, so anytime you see a system or person that claims to fill the role of the Holy Spirit, you should be on high alert. I was when I read the book. Um, so to summarize the, the McCord's book, and again, why they're, why they're important here in this discussion is because they were influenced by uh, Ian Crone, Suzanne Stabile, but a lot by Richard Rohr. In fact, Ms. McCord, in the introduction to the book, would point out how Richard Rohr's book, now again, he's the, he's the Catholic priest, how this book um, influenced her and her husband. The McCords certified Jackie Brewster. We're going to get to her book in a second. But the McCords make a claim that their approach is gospel-centered, but the gospel they advance in the book, it does not include a biblical concept of repentance. So I'm going to have to say it's, it's not the true gospel. All right? So that's the McCord's book. They're highly influential. Okay, so they, Ms. McCord is a highly sought out speaker, particularly at women's conferences. All right, let me, let me just give you another quick critique on Ms. Brewster's book. It just came out a few, few weeks ago. So um, she's a certified Enneagram coach. Um, I, I do want to start by saying about this book is that I am thankful and I appreciate Mrs. Brewster not putting a Christian label or subtitle on the book, because that would have been misleading. I believe that she herself makes claim to be a Christian, but nowhere in the book is there a reference to Jesus, the gospel, repentance. And again, in fairness, she does mention that she and her husband have had ups and downs in marriage, ministry, and parenting. And in three to four places, she mentions prayer and uses the word scripture, but there's never, and I read every word of the book, there's not any Bible verse cited or quoted in the book. So unlike the McCords, Mrs. Brewster makes absolutely no claim that this is a gospel-centered or a Christian book, but she undoubtedly has Christian followers who respect her opinions. So I want to, I think that's significant. So people that are Christians that write books that are trusted, uh, they they have followers. They have people that respect them and love them. Some of them almost idolize them. And so they'll, they'll believe what that person wrote versus evaluating what that person wrote using scripture. Okay. So the first part of Mrs. Brewster's book 
is undeniably a set of claims of what the Enneagram will do for your marriage. So it is hyping you up for what's to come. And it uses a lot of words like transform, revolutionize, build, grow, this concept of going deeper in your relationship. So again, that's got a big audience, right? Remember, losing weight, getting rich fast, or making your marriage better. Pretty big market for that. It seems that Don Rizzo and Russ Hudson, they were contemporaries, as I said, of Richard Rohr. It seems that they influenced Mrs. Brewster possibly more than Richard Rohr. And and I say that because there's a lot of Freudian psychotherapeutic terms and ideas that appear throughout the book. And in fact, I read Rizzo and Hudson, but I had, it was years ago, I had forgotten how committed they were to, and, and now it appears Mrs. Brewster also, but how committed they were to Freud. So some concerns in the book, and this is really the Enneagram system at large, but specifically Mrs. Brewster's book, the determinism of assigning each Enneagram type with a signature sin, which de-emphasizes a need to recognize, address, and repent of other types of personal sin, that's concerning. That's, that's pigeonholing. The book emphasizes a person's responsibility to understand and communicate their own needs. I, I'd like, I should have bought the ebook and counted how, how many times the word needs are, are, is used. But <clears throat> it's incumbent on you and I, Dave, to understand our needs so that others can meet those needs. The book also teaches that needs are what motivates a person's behavior. So meeting your spouse's needs are part of the formula for a deeper Deeper is another overused word in the book, a deeper relationship. So so to be clear, Mrs. Brewster is not referring to a person's need for food, clothing, shelter, or salvation in Christ. That's not what she's talking about. And then in the second, this is laid out as a seven-week workbook. In the second week of the workbook, the door to Freudian vocabulary is opened very wide. Okay, so some examples of that. Readers are told that they must unpack their unconscious childhood message in order to understand that childhood experiences are the driving force behind our motivations for our entire life. So the concept of the unconscious child childhood message acknowledges needs that were unmet by mom and dad in childhood. Okay, so... Mrs. Brewster goes on to acknowledge psychoanalytic and psychodynamic concepts of core fears, silent childhood wounds, the concept of triggers, defense mechanisms, repression. And all of those concepts are straight Freud, but she states them as if they're fact. So let me just pause and and hear and help us get our bearings. Why does it matter that Mrs. Brewster is using Freudian language and theory? Like, so what? Why is that such a big deal? Well, if Sigmund Freud can be credited with anything, it is certainly this, the removal of personal responsibility, right? Blame it on mom and dad. Blame it on things that happened in your childhood. That's what's shaped you. But what we see is modern psychologists, people I would not agree with a lot of what they believe and hold to, but modern psychologists specifically developmental psychologists, have rejected Freud out of hand. So they would maintain development is not fixed at childhood. It's a lifelong process. So what was really interesting to me is that I taught, one of the classes that I teach here at Spurgeon College and Midwestern Seminary is an introduction to psychology class. And I taught it this past spring. And I utilized a secular textbook by. DeWall and Myers, okay? This book right here, right? And what I did is a secular textbook, and, and I simultaneously biblically critiqued it each week, chapter by chapter, with, with our students. And I'm training them to biblically critique books like this. So mm-hmm. there is much that I would disagree with Dr. Myers and DeWall about in this book. 
So that's, again, why I'm training students on biblically critical thinking. Mm. However, their book is still the number one introductory psychology book, and it's in its 13th edition. 13th edition. Dave, you're an author. I'm an author. You have a book that's in its 13th edition. You've sold a lot of books, right? Yes, sir. And and so this book is meticulously footnoted, and, and it's using what, what we call multi-entry footnotes. So a footnote has usually got multiple entries, multiple authors or studies that are supporting that point. Why does that matter? Well, the authors and the numerous citations in the number one selling psychology book, and I checked it just this week, it's still number one. Guess what? The authors in those numerous citations speak directly against the Freudian concepts that Ms. Brewster states as if they're fact. The specific terms like repression and defense mechanisms. So really to summarize, the author of the the book, Ms. Brewster, she's got a really strong commitment to Freudian psychoanalytic theory and therapy that focused on making the unconscious conscious. And what goes with that is a convenient means to eliminate personal responsibility and blame others, namely our parents, namely our childhood experiences. So the book really promotes a transactional approach to communication and love within a marriage that really focuses on each spouse meeting the felt needs that their parents evidently did not meet. So there's nothing biblical at all about that approach. So I I can't endorse the book in in case you were wondering. So I want to just kind of walk you through all that to show you the lineage, so to speak, of Richard Rohr, Russ Hudson, uh, Don Rizzo, to then uh, Ian Crone, Suzanne Stabile, Christopher Hertz. And now you're starting to see the Enneagram applied to to marriage. I, I honestly won't be shocked when an Enneagram and your finances or your Enneagram and weight loss books come out. I'm just telling you, like those are, that's fertile land to to apply uh, secular concepts like this. So sorry for taking so long on that. No, that's that's really good. I, I love all of that. And I, I think it's so important um, that, you know, you're teaching students to read these books using critical thinking you know, uh, in First Thessalonians five twenty one, as as we both know that, and and many of our listeners know that word test it means to examine, it means to analyze things, and what better way to teach students to you know examine arguments that are out there um, than to understand what they are, and then to help them uh, you know engage in discernment. Um, mm-hmm. We would say, and so I, I, I think that's absolutely wonderful that you're walking students through, um, you know, books that uh, have nothing to do with the Christian worldview, nothing to do with the biblical worldview, and then you're bringing scripture to bear the the authority and sufficiency of scripture so that they can think and um, analyze and uh, examine and test all things. I, I think that's really, really important. I, I would, I would say. You know, I I wish when I was in Bible college and seminary that you know our our the professors I had would have done that more. I think that's a weakness. I think in the Bible <clears throat> college and and seminary world by and large, and so I, I I think what that you doing that is such a great service. Um, and I just say that as a word of encouragement. You know, if you're a professor or Bible college, uh. Uh, teacher, I would just say, do that. Help the students uh, in in that way, as you just demonstrated so powerfully. Um, so that was that was really good, brother. Great, yeah. So, yeah, I do have a. So what you're seeing and I'm seeing is like this mainstreaming of the enneagram into the church today. I mean, are you seeing it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. I just want to comment on, I've got some concerns about that and and some warnings for the church at large. So I would say that my concerns and warnings to the church regarding use of the Enneagram, first of all, the, the system promotes a, what I'd call a dangerous shift in focus away from 
discovering the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So the Bible overwhelmingly screams out the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. It's hard to read it and walk away with without those two concepts. So, but the Enneagram, I think, shifts us away from discovering the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And, and this dangerous shift moves more in the direction of man's attempt to discover his mythical, good, divine nature. And it comes in the form of a self-assigned, man-made personality label. That, that's concerning. And then second, the Enneagram system mischaracterizes man's problem as one of mistaken identity instead of sinful and rebellious nature that's in need of redemption, in need of salvation. And then I think the third thing, utilizing the Enneagram, it promotes a false gospel. And it does that by proposing that the restoration of man looks like reconnection with his original good true self. And so th- this gives rise to a false hope. Mm. So when you when you put this all together, you see a system constructed on an unbiblical view of God, of man, of sin, and of salvation. We know that God has graciously revealed his holy character, and he's graciously revealed man's sinful nature. And he's done that in scripture. So his characterization of himself and of man has never changed and it never will change to accommodate any culture. So God has also graciously provided the only means for man to be saved from his sinful predicament. And Jesus himself makes that exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. That will never change. So it's not going to change for eternity. And when I read that, even in the face of a worldly system, a really an anti-Christian system, I think it's helpful to just be reminded that God has provided uh, the Savior, the only sacrifice acceptable to God himself. He's given us that in the person, the work of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. And I say to that, thank you, Lord, for eternity. Yes. So... Amen. Really good. Yeah. Uh, Just to kind of touch on this before we go to the next question, I think, you know, that what we've seen with this is you look at Richard Rohr and you look at who he's, you know, impacted. And then as as always, like you were touching on with that psychology book with the students, um, as we look at that, look at the fruit you can look at what they believe which you have done an absolute brilliant job at and and then also we look at the fruit of it and you look at it and you're like wait a minute you as you as you looked at all those books and you walked us through those very helpfully uh with with the scripture bringing it to bear um you know you you see that all these people have drifted away from the biblical worldview as you're as you're pointing out um, and and where is the fruit? Well, the fruit leads away from the Bible. The fruit leads away from, you know, uh, what what we as Christians ha- have believed and have taught and what the church has taught. And so that should give us a lot of pause. And I think what we've seen is we've seen, as Jay Gresham Machen said, that theological liberalism is a or progressive Christianity is another religion in his classic book, Christianity. And liberalism and so you know just just look at that look at the trajectory look at where people are going and then you know you can see you know these oftentimes these same people are supporting the and we use air quotes for this you know gay christianity and other things that the bible prohibits um Mm -hmm. and speaks to as well and so it's like you know, they're, they're just totally walking away and sw- we could use a biblical word swerving as Paul does in second Timothy swerving away from the, the truth. Um, and so I, I think uh, that's something really to pay attention to, you know, mm-hmm. ideas it's been said have consequences. I think that was mm-hmm. RC Sproul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he also said, you know, everyone's a theologians. Um, the question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. Well, this is really mm-hmm. bad theology. And so 
uh, just something to pay attention to as you as we're seeing this continue to progress. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I think for um, what you see is pastors and a lot of their ministry leaders, however they encounter it, they're they're encountering systems like this. And, and, and there's things other than the Enneagram that are threatening to the, the church today. And so the question comes up like, okay, how, what would you say to this? How, how would you equip them uh, to combat this? And so I want to, I guess, specific to this false teaching, uh, I would say to pastors that are confronted with the system in their church, I would take your leaders, your church members even, I would take them to the underlying doctrines. In this case, it's of the Enneagram. But, okay, so remember how I said I, I teach these students here to read what I call biblically critically. Well, I would submit to you that evaluating any system, any podcast, any sermon, you can do that through the, the grid of, okay, what's this system? What's this person say about God? man, sin, and salvation. What are these ologies, right? these theology, anthropology, homardiology, soteriology? So in the case of the Enneagram, if I'm a pastor and I'm confronted with it, I, I would educate my people on it. But that's where I would go. I'd go to the root ologies of the system. So again, that's why I was, I think I was careful in my book to, I have a lot of quotes and a lot of footnotes. I wanted to make sure that people didn't say, no, you're misreading them, Ren. I, I wanted you to know exactly, I wanted you to see for yourself what those Enneagram authors have said about those four things, God, man, sin, and salvation. I wanted to present their words, not my take on their words. So I, I, wanna, I would want to help church members, leaders evaluate and critique, in this case, the teachings of Richard Rohr, and then ask the question, hmm. okay? Would I, based on what I've read about Richard Rohr, and again, for Richard Rohr, a lot of his theological writings are not in his Enneagram books. I had to go read his other books and go to his website and read articles and blogs. But based on what I've read about Richard Rohr, would I allow him to teach in my church? This man is a heretic, right? Even Roman Catholics call him out as a heretic. So why would pastors who know the facts about an anti-biblical theology. In this case, it's of the Enneagram, and it's from Richard Rohr. Why would they allow that system to be taught in their church? I don't understand that. So when, when pastors and leaders are confronted with this and they don't know what to do about it, they need to not be lazy about it. They need to go search out good biblical critiques of these systems. And again, we're, we're speaking of the Enneagram today, but the same, I think, methodology would apply to other questionable systems that make their way into the church. Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, you have a church in Riverside, uh, California, for example. Right. Uh, as you know, well, I can't think of the name. I think it's Sandals. Sandals, it's yeah. Sandals. Where you and other churches as well, where you have, as as we both know, and other people know as well now, uh, where the pastor and is teaching the people not to deal with their emotions through, you know, with scripture, right. but using the Enneagram to help people interpret their emotions. It's like, mm -hmm. what in the world uh, is happening there? You mm -hmm. know, and that, as, as we know, that's happening all over the place. We see it as you so uh, beautifully and brilliantly put earlier in the show, you're seeing it with all these books coming out and applying this um, secular uh, theology, uh, ideology and theology to, um, you know, to the Enneagram. And mm -hmm. so we, we got to we got to warn about it. We got to educate mm -hmm. about it. We got to inform. Um, we got to, you know, reject it. Um, and, and and like Second uh, Corinthians ten five says, as Colossians two eight says, uh, G three tells us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. First Peter three fifteen always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have to do it with gentleness and respect. Second Timothy uh, two twenty four and twenty five. You know we're supposed to correct with gentleness. Gentleness 
Paul says in Galatians 5, 22, 23 is a fruit of the spirit. Those things that, you know, the Lord is, is using in our lives to help us, as, as you so wonderfully put, uh, to conform us into the image of Christ. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we could, we could say a lot of things about, about mm -hmm. that. Uh, so, but brother, where can people go to find you on social media? <laughs> or otherwise well, yeah yeah so i don't have a big presence on social media i do have a facebook page i tell my undergrad students all the time i say you know there was a day when facebook was cool i said and then you started getting friend requests from mom and grandma and you had to move on to something else so <laughs> again my, my kids are in their mid-20s um so these are the forms of social media but so i've got a facebook page but I, i've got online lectures and podcasts out there. So if you Googled Ren Cherry Enneagram, you'll find some links to those. Uh, first, I would say that you can find a lecture that I did, and it's on American Gospel TV, where I compare the Enneagram Gospel and the Biblical Gospel. And so it's on AGTV. I love those guys, Ren and Kim, Kimber at, at, uh, at AGTV. They do such a great job and such high-quality content. I would say also... BiblicalCounseling.com. That's the home of ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. We have really good resources about a lot of biblical counseling issues. But uh, about two years ago on our weekly podcast, which is called Truth and Love, that's a great resource that comes out every Monday. If you search, so if you went to BiblicalCounseling.com, you searched Truth and Love, episode 305. I think it's titled Considering personality typologies. What you'd find there, that's the first of a four-part series where I did it with Dr. Johnson. I walk through briefly the history of personality typologies, and then I evaluate the Enneagram. So I, I would recommend that series to you. So you can just Google Truth and Love, episode 305. Um, it's proven actually to be one of our most listened to podcasts in the history of the podcast. A lot of a lot of people had questions about it, so that's that's pretty much where I would send you. Yeah, that's that's really good. And that guys, uh, Truth and Love is a great podcast. Maybe maybe you even just want to tell us a little bit as well as we uh, wrap up here shortly, uh, just a little bit about uh, the Association of Biblical Counselors. Yeah, so we're we're called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and what we do is we train and certify people some of them pastors, uh, lay people, to counsel using the Bible. So again, we're going to define biblical counseling as a ministry of the church. Uh, it's not something that we think can be done uh, with people that have not yet submitted themselves to Christ. I would, even if I were in a counseling situation, what we'll be labeling a counsel, counseling session uh, with an unbeliever, I would be pursuing them with the gospel. I, I would not think that they can receive the truth of the word and walk in obedience to it. But so we, we provide training to and certification for people to learn how to counsel others using the Bible. So uh, we're the, we're the world leader in that, in that arena. We have about 2,500 approaching 3000 certified members. So if you were in need of a biblical counselor, you could go to biblicalcounseling.com. And there'll be a find a counselor function there. You just put in your zip code and it'll show you everyone in your area that you could make contact with to receive counseling from an ACBC certified counselor. Yeah. And just, just as an encouragement to you and the team there, I am constantly referring people uh, to that, to you guys. And so okay. uh, to biblical counselors all over the country. And so uh, if you're looking for a biblical counselor, I'll just say this as well. Uh, go to their website, uh, do as uh, Dr. Cherry said, and find yourself a biblical counselor. So, well, well, brother, um, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about. We really have only scratched the surface. And just as we wrap up our time together, can you give us a few takeaways? Sure, absolutely. I think I would just say, once you know something, you can't unknow it. So today you've heard some of the dangers associated with the unbiblical theology of the Enneagram. And, and I would stand by my research 100%. You can read my book. 
you can check out all the sources and footnotes. Um, but at its roots, the Enneagram promotes a false gospel, really of self-awareness by discovering a good, true self. And that good, true self, as defined by Rohr, it doesn't really exist. So in summary, I'd say something like the Enneagram is a proverbial road to nowhere that provides its own peculiar language, its own sense of inclusion for people to amuse themselves as they search for this mythical destination of discovering one's good, true self. So my parting words to you is you need to flee from it. Yeah, it's really good. Well, guys, we've been talking today with our brother in Christ and friend, Ren Cherry, about the Enneagram and also uh, the biblical counseling movement. Uh, Ren's book is called Enneagram Theology is a Christian as as he's been talking about it, uh, I, I also, as I read it, really appreciated how he, you know, not only thoroughly and accurately represents the authors, but he does a great job, as he's shown throughout the show, of bringing the scripture to bear to show why those arguments are uh, undermine the authority and sufficiency of scripture and don't help anybody. So thank you, brother, for your the the great work that you've done in this book and uh, today on the show and all glory to God, of course. Thank you, brother. It was a joy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe Rate us on the app and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.